This is the Banker's Corner, a McGuire Woods series exploring investment trends, solutions, and business issues relevant in today's private equity and finance industry. Tune in with McGuire Woods partner Jeff Cockrell as he and specialists share real-world insight to help enhance your knowledge. Thank you for joining another episode of the Corner Series where we bring together dealmakers in uh, healthcare investing by private equity uh, investors to discuss some of the current trends. Uh, we dive into particular market sectors, just have a general interesting discussion. Uh, I'm your host, Jeff Cockrell, partner at McGuire Woods. I head the private equity uh, industry group here. Um, I'm glad you could all join us. I'm thrilled to be joined by my good friend, David Baker from uh, FTI, uh, one of uh, my favorite investment bankers in the healthcare space. Uh, David, maybe give a quick introduction of yourself and then we'll jump into some topics. Uh, sure. Thanks, Jeff. I'm with recently with FDI Capital Advisors, which is the investment banking arm for FDI Consulting. I've been doing M&A transactions my entire career, my first job out of school, and got into healthcare with GE Healthcare. I was on the buy side with GE, bought 25 different companies with, uh, with GE. I went into an operating role with them in Europe, but coming back from that assignment, I went back to the banking side exclusively on on healthcare I've been doing that um, ever since for you know 30 years now uh, all healthcare all the time so it's been uh, it's been fun it's a great segment um, we're doing you know, services uh, uh, medtech uh, equipment deals and uh, some healthcare IT as well so it's uh, good to join you this morning thanks david we chatted out at JP Morgan conference a few weeks ago and i had a number of discussions with uh, investment bankers and there was a fair amount of doom and gloom as to what the pipeline in Q1 looks like. And kind of from where I sit, um, one of the drivers in that is kind of availability of credit, that uh, senior lenders were uh, both uh, overextended in investing, um, but also feeling a fair amount of uh, rate instability with the interest rates kind of continuing to move coupled with uh, the private credit market uh, can only go so far before they run out of dry powder themselves. But all of that uh, leading to a little bit of doom and gloom in Q1. But I, I want to ask you a specific question that the, the higher rates have implication in pricing. The, the models for buyers to achieve their return uh, have to incorporate higher rates, which has a natural implication on valuation multiples. One of the discussions I was having with folks out there is whether or not sellers are ready to acquiesce to some of those pricing implications. From where you sit in your conversations with sellers and potential sellers, how do sellers view valuation implications of higher rates? We, we still do. We track, you know, all of the variables. We look, you know, in within the that affect the transaction market, which include certainly include uh, rates, availability of credit, but also just the economy generally, segment segment growth, other things that are happening within the economy overall. And you know, for the last several years, uh, a pandemic aside, it was you know all markers were green, everything was pointing up, everything was green, and we said you can't get a better deal market. And we knew at some point things would change, and and here we are. And certainly rates are the impacting the transactions and the pricing. We've heard that from a strategic looking at one of our clients right now. And they said, and we had just closed a deal with them last year. And they said, look, it's clearly for us. And right now, just because of rates, the, you know, the multiple is down 
a turn or two from you know where they're going to be. But uh, more importantly for that particular asset, it was for them, it was a little bit more about the opportunity on that particular transaction. So I think that tends to drive the decision-making even more. So for them, it was a bit more about that segment, that geography, that particular fit, although rates certainly have an impact. And as, as you know, a lot of the middle market deals are not they're not highly levered. They do deploy leverage, and they're using that effectively to to help the equity returns. But the the middle market is not impacted as much as maybe you know the much larger transactions. So it has somewhat of an effect, but it's not the overall driver. It's still about quality companies that have growth prospects are still going to get attention in the market and and, and likely have a, a premium price uh, to them as well. As far as where they, uh, the buyers are view, you know, I guess the second part of the question, the buyers view and kind of are they willing to move? They certainly don't go into a deal thinking, well, we're, it's going to be suboptimal. Um, uh, like any, I'm sorry, sellers, any seller, you know, certainly is, is looking at um, having the optimal outcome. But they're also willing to accept what the market feedback is when you get this, you know, very consistent message coming back from the marketplace they you know are willing to accept that that is the the view of the market you have some pretty smart money looking at these opportunities and you tend to see a pretty consistent response uh, which which the consistency of that response i think is what allows for sellers to become you know comfortable with you know what the opportunity is setting aside pricing just from an execution perspective there's a certain amount of anxiety um, around just availability credit, and I, I appreciate that uh, middle market and a lot of healthcare is middle markets uh, are generally going to be less levered, but it still plays a part in it. D- does the does anxiety around the availability of credit to finance a transaction, whether you're talking senior lenders, private credit funds, um, or even limited availability on delayed draw term loans for existing kind of strategic buyers? Does that impact any of your thinking on timing of bringing an asset to market, or is any time good if you have a good asset? Well, I think generally any time, if you have a good asset, any time is, is a good time. Good assets in uh, strong markets or or softer markets are still going to get, and probably even more so in the softer market, will get more of the attention because uh, you know buyers don't want to don't take on something that needs to be fixed or troubled, you know, as much in a, you know, a softer market, it's just, you know, it's, it's, it's harder. So I think a good asset in, even in a softer market will get equal or, or probably even more, more attention, you know, availability of credit is, is certainly, you know, we have to understand that and we have a, a responsibility to make sure uh, we can get to a, the close with that structure, with that buyer. And so we'll certainly dig in along with along with the buyer to understand what the availability is for that debt structure. But we have not run into any problems with any retrades or availability with respect to the, you know, the credit side of the, of the transactions. Uh, you know, so far it's um, everything has been working. You know, who knows what happens here in the in the coming months? But so far everything's been pretty much business as usual on, you know, apart from obviously what we talked about before, you know, rates have gone up a bit, has a marginal effect on the overall pricing and the deal structure or the deal pricing. But um, 
hasn't impacted it in a, in, a, in a large way at this time anyway. Given some of the macro level headwinds uh, in the economy, both real and anticipated, one of the benefits of healthcare investing is that it has healthcare as a as an industry is a little bit more resilient against uh, a down economy in that demand for healthcare services is not uh, directly correlated to economic growth more at a macro level. Do you see a lot of investors moving towards healthcare in the midst of maybe challenges in other sectors that they might invest? And does that have an impact on pricing as well? It does. It, it, helps, it helps support, I think, the, the valuations in, in many of the healthcare segments, because as you said, it is somewhat, it is shielded. We just closed on a equipment services uh, transaction and that and that company was providing services to to labs principally and the labs it, you know obviously are you know they're going to be um, processing you know their samples and and doing their diagnostics uh, regardless kind of economy right so people are having you know a lot of pathology and, and derm and histology and those things, you know, those tests are going to be done regardless. Therefore, the equipment needs to be up and running. And that's what our client was doing was servicing that the equipment. Um, so it's, it's pretty steady. And that's what I think a lot of what attracts, you know, a lot of investors to the segment is, you know, it, it, is, is how steady it is. So it doesn't, you know, healthcare, you know, hasn't gotten the highs and lows that many other sectors have gotten over here. We've, you know, we've been through these segments in the in the past, and you know, the only time that really I saw a very significant slowdown, even pause in in the healthcare uh, segment was when um, when Obamacare was going to the Supreme Court. The few months when right before that decision was made, and I don't know if you you probably saw the same thing, but a lot of people just sat on their hands just leading up to that, just because it's such a binary decision waiting for the Supreme Court decision on how it was going to be treated. But apart from that event, I think even through the pandemic, even through, you know, certain segments got shut down in the pandemic, but other, we closed deals in the middle of that. In the financial crisis, same thing. It was, uh, you know, deals were still getting done and it's still fairly steady in uh, within many of the healthcare segments. You mentioned uh, kind of healthcare support services. So, not provider services, we are seeing a ton of interest and in activity surrounding uh, kind of healthcare non-provider services. So those support services, maybe pharma services, pharmacy services, payer services. The the confluence from where I sit is that you have uh, some non-healthcare primary investors wanting to move into healthcare investing, both uh, on account of it being a sixth of the economy. And also on some of those dynamics we're talking about where it's a little bit more resilient to a more challenging macro economy, um, but also uh, investors that have done a lot of provider services looking to diversify. Um, that feels like a white hot area right now. Is that consistent with what you're seeing? Yeah, I, I think so. And I think that's it tends to that tends to be fairly consistent, but it's also certainly gets the support services non-provider <clears throat> keeps the you know investors that don't like to have the direct reimbursement risk you know so you know that's it keeps them a step removed from the direct reimbursement risk you know maybe they don't want to invest in a business that is accepting 
Medicare, Medicaid, uh, you know, it's a lot of reasons for investors that may shy away from provider. The non-provider is is going to be critical for those those services to continue to be able to leverage all the providers because our you know our healthcare economy it cannot deliver what is going to be demanded of it without creating more efficient more efficiencies for the providers right the providers need to be just over time you know you have you have a you have a gap between many provider segments in terms of the demand and supply and the only solution really to solve that apart from magically creating more experts which isn't going to happen quickly within any field uh, the only you know solution is to be better leverage their capabilities through a lot of these support services and that's where i think a lot of these this activity is, is coming to play and if somebody has a, a solution that can provide and, and help better outcomes at lower cost it's it's going to be a winner and and it's going to continue to attract a, a, a lot of attention for that reason Maybe diving a little further into uh, provider services, uh, a few questions. It's been a pretty extended run of consolidation in the provider services arena as you look at kind of sector by sector. uh, Investor attention has kind of migrated their way through the provider services arena. First question is, do you see any end in sight to that trend from an availability perspective? Dental is a massive industry. A lot of other provider uh, sectors are a lot smaller. Do you see any end in availability of things to consolidate? Well, well, certainly there is a you know a theoretical end to it. But I mean, your dental example is you know dental is 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 still largely fragmented, right? There's still even despite the hundred plus platforms that private equity has uh, invested in and created over the years, uh, you know, those, you know, there's still a huge amount. I, I don't know what the number is now. Maybe it's 20% of the market or so. Um, it was, I think, you know, 12, 15% is climbing up. And so certainly it's getting consolidated, but what is the, what's the point of saturation? There's certainly providers, dental or other segments that, you know, want to stay independent and will. So you'll never get to the you know 100% max certainly, and and there's other reasons probably that would um, push against that that trend. Uh, just being able to once you have further consolidation, there's going to be other models that will come into play that are able to find a solution or find a home that might be more efficient. I think those things certainly could happen, but it's it's harder for new providers coming out of out of school in any segment. You know, just go out and start a business and hang a shingle. It goes back to you know the availability of credit you mentioned. Physicians used to go to their you know local bank and get a credit line and open an office, and you know off they go. And now you can still do that, but it's a little different game than it used to be in terms of the security for for the lender. So it's I think that be, that has become harder as well. The um, the segments I think that that have not had as much attention I think on the provider side. Uh, are you know are starting to? I mean, I mean we've seen transactions in, in many segments that historically have not had the same type of attention. Even you know you know podiatry, cardiology. We did a cardiology deal a couple of years ago, uh, just when reimbursement changes were, were come into play, and most of those cardiologists are in vast majority are employed by hospitals as a kind of a historical fact of 
back, it goes back to, again, back to Obamacare and I think some of the change in the incentives for the hospitals to pull in those cardiologists in, in an employment basis. And now it's shifting back. So, you know, these shifts in, you know, kind of reimbursements, uh, the capital coming in, other efficiencies available to support the uh, physicians, they all kind of come into play in, in different segments and in, in different ways. But I think what, what happens is, uh, or what is happening is it is driving uh, the consolidation and it will continue. And it's also, I think, a fact of those physicians that have built up a, a large practice, large, uh, you know, as a partnership, and they're trying to understand, you know, you know, their exit opportunities relative to newly minted physicians coming out of school and looking whether they're going to be employment model or a partner model and more and more choosing the happy to choose the employment model versus the first of the partnership. So I think a lot of these factors come into play, which will continue to have consolidation and segments as a result. So it becomes, it's both the financial as well as the personal, as well as the strategic, all are part of the mix of the decision-making. Maybe uh, flipping the analysis to the other end of the spectrum, from a consolidation perspective, you got uh, smaller consolidators that sell to larger consolidators, usually a private equity fund to private equity fund transaction, uh, and then to a larger fund to a larger fund. Ultimately, it would seem that the for the the model to continue and succeed, those kind of back-end buyers need to have success. How do you think of the kind of what does success look like for a, a very large buyer? Does everyone end up selling to Optum or uh, becoming public? Uh, what are some of the back-end scenarios that will be successful for those buyers? Because if if those buyers don't find success, that will ripple down through the entire consolidation apparatus. Are you bullish on how that what that looks like? Well, certainly, there's there continues to be you know demand amongst large um, large strategics for physician practice in in a, in a variety of segments. I mean, Optum, well, you know, they might have as an example might have you know interest in and in a certain segment, they're you know they're at the point even where they're going to you know get some attention in certain markets where they relative to um, you know antitrust. So there's you know their you know their density in certain markets is probably um, you know nearing a point where they're not going to be able to do too much without getting you know drawing attention. Although there's a lot of the market still left for them to cover, and then you also have the example with um, uh, you know the announcement with CVS and in Oak Street just yesterday. So you have, you know, you certainly have a number of different uh, strategics that are still looking to pick up and, and, and build out the provider services in a bigger way. So I think there are still remain exit opportunities, uh, the, you know, the public markets that this was a, a path that is another, op, another alternative maybe for a larger platform. While this was done 30 years ago, as you recall, the wave of Ficor and the others that were, you know, many you know publicly traded physician practices, but those really didn't last. I think because of the way they were structured and you know the alignment of incentives, and I think the uh, the, the way the deals are getting structured today better align the new investors with the physician providers and the incentives, and so everybody's kind of driving towards this uh, the you know the same growth model. 
I think there is remains an opportunity. I mean, the, for even the larger platforms to find find an exit. So, but that's the natural. It has to happen. Is to your point. How you know? How else does somebody come in and you know everybody's coming in who's who's making the investment already has a view on the on the exit, right? So with without those two things, you you know you can't even get to you can't get to the close. Right, and I'm of the view that you get to a certain size and scale and some of the return expectations can shift that, I mean, a private equity fund is modeling out through leverage and other means, a return, uh, whether IRR or cash on cash, maybe two, three, four times cash on cash return for an investment, you get to a certain size, uh, either of uh, direct, uh, like major institutional investors, where I think they view investing in this arena a little bit more like they view the return expectations in public markets, that they can get kind of exposure to large uh, assets. And if you have a diversified portfolio, it will behave uh, like maybe a little better, but like uh, direct public market investment. So the return expectations can level off on that higher end, which I think can be a definition of success that will continue to support the the model. So I'm still bullish that uh, that a there's supply like we talked about before, and b you don't run out of uh, room for growth as you kind of land on kind of major platforms that ultimately will behave and grow at a more measured pace more like a publicly traded company would, uh, and that will be okay. Um, so I'm still bullish as well. Yeah, and you have also on, on adding to that in terms of this, the larger platforms, you just, the larger also have the ability to add other services and, and even be more relevant, uh, you know, to their, to their patients. And again, if, if we're thinking about the, on the provider side and, you know, taking you know the cardiology for example once once you get start getting to a certain scale and you can have and you have a cath lab and you can have uh, your own you know imaging because you have the volumes to support that and it's more efficient and the, the imaging's right next is in the cath lab it's next door to it you can the cardiology deal we did they had they had a sleep lab which obviously has a you know a big tie into cardiology. And so there's, and, and then the home telemonitoring. So there's a lot of different services that you can more efficiently bring to the table versus when you're, you know, when you're a little bit smaller and, and you're more focused on, you know, a specific therapy or specific segments. And that also adds to the growth, uh, the stickiness of, of those revenue streams, which speaks to your point on uh, the stability and how investors look at it more like a public market because there there you have a bit more stability maybe it's less um, uh, less of the of the up and downs or maybe the risk profile is is more modest and therefore you're willing to accept a slightly lower return because the risk profile has has changed and so therefore that leads to the same conclusion which is yes there there should be exit opportunity even for the much larger platforms because that capital can generate a return over uh, over time. David, I think we could uh, talk all day, but uh, let's uh, leave it there. It's been great to explore some of these kind of macro level trends with you, and uh, we'd love to have you uh, uh, back on the corner series sometime. Yeah, well, th- well, thanks. Always, always happy to talk about 
the healthcare deal market. So thanks, Jeff. Thanks very much. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on this installment of The Banker's Corner. To learn more about today's discussion, please email host Jeff Cockrell at gcockrell at mcguirewoods.com. We look forward to hearing from you. This series was recorded and is being made available by McGuire Woods for informational purposes only. By accessing this series, you acknowledge that McGuire Woods makes no warranty, guarantee, or representation as to the accuracy or sufficiency of the information featured in this installment. The views, information, or opinions expressed are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily reflect those of McGuire Woods. This series should not be used as a substitute for competent legal advice from a licensed professional attorney in your state and should not be construed as an offer to make or consider any investment or course of action.